The Heidelberg Catechism uh, was published in 1563. It is one of what is called the three forms of unity uh, that several Protestant churches, particularly those uh, that have a Dutch, a Dutch Reformed background, would hold to as their confession of faith. It is regarded as one of the most influential of the Reformed catechisms, and it asks in its very first question, a question and gives an answer that lays the foundation uh, for the catechism itself, and it is a most important question and answer for the believer. What is thy only comfort in life and death? What is thy only comfort in life and death? And the answer is given that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair may fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. That I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my Savior. And the Heidelberg Catechism sets forth something that we find woven throughout the Scriptures of truth, that of comfort to the Lord's people, and specifically comfort that is centered and focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah the prophet cries out words of comfort in verse 40, or verses 1 to 2 of Isaiah 40, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort ye. In Luke 2, the angelic declaration to the shepherds near Bethlehem was a message of comfort, a message of comfort that pointed them and told them not to fear and pointed them to the Lord Jesus Christ. What was the message that the Lord Jesus himself preached? Matthew 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's rest, there's comfort found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the name of the message of salvation that we preach? It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word gospel simply meaning good news. Good news. A message that brings good news. A message that brings comfort to those that have been brought low by the sin and wickedness of their own heart and the sin and wickedness of mankind. And the Apostle Peter, in writing this epistle to the strangers that were scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia, to name two of the places mentioned in chapter 1, he seeks to give them hope and to encourage them and to bring comfort through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church was in the midst of facing persecutions and tribulations. They had faced persecution. They were facing persecution. They would again, in the future, face persecution. It was an ongoing thing, we could say. The people of God that Peter was writing to would face suffering for the cause of Christ. But in these sufferings, they were not alone. They were not alone. Though they be strangers, 
And if we turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, here we see that Peter is writing to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus Galatia to, again, name just two of those places. He's writing to these strangers, but despite being strangers, they are not alone, for Christ is their Savior, Christ is their Master, and Christ is their friend. In 1 Peter chapter 4, in the verse 12, <coughs> Peter says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a bitty body in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And Peter is encouraging them that the suffering they face is not a strange thing. It is something that is expected as those who live for Christ because Christ suffered. And dear believer, how perhaps we have faced circumstances, maybe similar circumstances to what many of these strangers and believers faced. Maybe we faced difficult times as God's people. Maybe yet in the future those difficult times are just out of view, but they're coming. They're coming in God's time. Perhaps other types of suffering and trials have come upon us, and these things have discouraged us. And maybe even this morning we find ourselves discouraged and weary and downcast. Oh, how hard the burdens of life can press down upon us. Oh, the curse of life, how that can press us sore. When Spurgeon preached on this passage, his very first point at least on one of the occasions he preached in this passage, his very first point was the disease of Kerr. The disease of Kerr. And he spoke about, using verse 7, the curs that we have. Curs that are a result of this world, the curs that are the result of following Christ. He went on to speak about curs that are our fault. Curse that we bring upon ourselves because of sin and failing to live for Christ as we ought to live. And he spoke about it all as being this great disease. And of course, the curse we have in life, let me say, not every curse is a sinful curse that we can avoid if we flee sin. There are curse that come upon the people of God. We can see that in Scripture because they love the Lord, and they serve the Lord, and they live for the Lord, and the trials of life press down upon them, not because of sin, but in the perfect will of God. Not every cur that we have is a cur that has been founded and born in our own sin. But sometimes that can be the case. Sometimes that can be the case. And in 1 Peter 5, Peter draws attention, firstly, to the leadership of the church of Christ. This is the context of this chapter. 
there is a particular exhortation to the elders and to the pastors among these believers. And Peter here is speaking in verse 1 as a elder, a fellow elder, one who was the witness of the sufferings of Christ, one who is a colleague in the ministry with those who are the elders here. And he is seeking to instruct them and encourage them. He says in verse 2 and 3, "...feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock." And he's exhorting these leaders to go about their spiritual work with the right attitude, with the right spirit, to do it not for their own motives, not for money or riches, to do it for Christ, to serve Christ, to be a model, an example to the flock of God. And it is a serious work. And that's why, dear believer, we must always uh, be in prayer for those who are the leaders within the church of Christ. It is a difficult work. It is a hard work. And as we see uh, in verse 8, the devil is like that lion seeking whom he may devour. And the elders and the pastors... Uh, like all of us, they're not immune. They're not immune. The devil seeks whom he may devour. Let us pray. Let us pray. But it is a serious work, a serious work. Peter here is saying, he's not saying here that your attitude is irrelevant, your effort, your spirit, your motives are all irrelevant to the work. He's saying, be the example. Lead by example. And these words echo what uh, Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. We won't turn to that, but the connection is here. And verse 4 brings into the picture the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom is the, the great shepherd, the one we must imitate, the one we must all imitate. And then we find in verse 6 how this work is to be undertaken in humility. It is a daunting work, but there is to be humility before the Lord. And we are to be humble before the Lord. These words are directed to those who are elders, those who are the leaders within the church of Christ. But here we find, not only in verse 6, humble yourselves, but in verse 7 we read of something wonderful and encouraging, something that is powerful, something that is not merely for the elder of the church, but for all believers. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Here is doctrine and application of that doctrine, or in the sentence structure we have, the application and then the doctrine. Casting our care upon Christ. Why do we do that? Because Christ cares for us. Christ cares for us. And the word casting simply means to throw upon. We can speak in terms of fishing, throwing your line upon the waters in search of fish, throwing it, casting it upon the water. I think we have a strong emphasis on the word cast here. It's not mainly merely to give, to give our curves over to Christ, but to throw them upon Christ. You would want me to give you a cup of hot coffee, but you wouldn't want me to cast it at you. There's a difference. There's a difference. But here we're being told to throw these things, to cast these things. There's an intensity here that all our curves are to be thrown, as it were, cast upon the Lord because He curves. We're to pray to Him, and in doing so, our curves, our burdens, 
can be brought to the feet of the Savior. There is encouragement in some ways to be found by sharing our trials and our burdens with others. Sometimes those trials and burdens we feel best to keep private. Sometimes they can, as it were, spill over and affect us in every aspect of our lives. But here there's direction about what to do with all of those cares. Bring them to Christ. Bring them to Christ. And this verse brings us then back to that thought of comfort. Christ is our only comfort in life and death. And in the midst of a church that is suffering, in a suffering world, here in First Peter, these pastors, these elders, these believers can look at the Savior who cared for them, and they could throw their cares upon Him. Oh, how comforting it is to know that Christ cares, to know that we can cast our cares upon Him, to cast all of our care upon Him. How often have we spoken to individuals who perhaps love us greatly, and we bring our burdens again to them? And maybe they're so fed up of hearing about those burdens, they say, not again. I don't want to hear this again. If that's never happened to you, I suppose that's good, but it can happen. We as humans, finite, weak humans, can feel that great burden with the trials of life and then with others' trials. But yet, we're told here to cast all of our care upon Christ. He's able to bear it. He's able to care for us because He is our comfort in life. And this morning, very simply, I want to leave a few thoughts with you. I desire this message to be simple, to be encouraging, to be clear. And our subject is our comfort in life. Our comfort in life. And Christ is our great comfort as, firstly, we are to cast our cares upon the Lord because He loves us. We're to cast our cares upon the Lord because He loves us. And as we consider verse 7 of 1 Peter 5, casting all your care upon Him for He careth for you, the reason we can do that is based in the love of God and the love of Christ for us. The hymn writer wrote those words, loved with everlasting love, led by grace that love to know, spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace, oh, this transport all divine, in a love which cannot cease. I am his, and he is mine. Oh, the great love that Christ has for us, his people, and the reason this verse can exist is it not the love of God toward us? A wonderful love, a marvelous love, a love that is unexpected, a love that is undeserved, because Romans 5 reminds us, but God commendeth his love toward us in while we were yet sinners, the lowest of the low. No good in us, condemned, wicked, evil in the sight of God, nothing we could do ourselves, deserving God's wrath. Christ died for us. God loved us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, the love of God that is set forth in the Scriptures. 1 John 4, and this was manifested. The love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Here in His love, 
not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Paul said about living by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, the great love of Christ. And we can think of this love as a saving love. He died for his people, and there on Calvary, we see the greatest expression ever of love, of love. Love in all of its divine glory. Love showing forth grace and mercy as Christ died upon Calvary for the sins of sinners, the sins of his people. Robert Murray McShane was a young pastor in Scotland in the first half of the 19th century. He had a deep, passionate love for his God that showed himself in his love for the city of Dundee. And he wrote these words, when this passing world is done, when a sunk young radiant sun, when I stand with Christ on high, looking o'er life's history, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Thinking of the love of Christ for him, oh, what he owed. Oh, dear believer, how much you owe the Lord today because he loved you when you were a wretch. He loved you when you were vile. He loved you when you were unclean and wicked and sinful. He loved you when you hated him. He loved you when you rebelled and sinned against him. He loved you when you blasphemed his name. Oh, the love of God for his people. He sent Christ to be our Savior. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Chosen not for good in me, McShane said, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. Oh, the love that Christ had for us. That love is seen in his death for his people. That love is seen as he purchased eternal redemption for his people. That love is seen as he cares for us, as he is our mediator, as he is our friend who will never leave us nor forsake us. But what if your soul this morning, is your soul touched by the love of Christ? Is Christ your only comfort in life and death? Is Christ your Savior? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That can only apply this morning to those who know and love Christ as their Savior, those who've turned from sin, those who've experienced that great love of Christ. What's the alternative that I, with body and soul, am my own? I'm one who belongs unto the devil. That's the contrast here. We are off Christ or we are off the devil. It's one of the one or the other. One or the other. Oh, that you would flee from sin and look to the Savior. You would experience His love, His grace. And dear believer, how wonderful it is to know that despite our sin and iniquity, 
Christ loved us. Despite our rebellion, Christ loved us. Despite our daily sin, Christ loves us, his people. And Peter knew and experienced much of Christ's love for him. We find Peter in John chapter 13 saying, Lord, I will lay down my life for thy sake. I love you so much. I will die for you. And then we find just later on, what does he do? He denies the Savior three times. Oh, how he declared his love for Christ and he denied ever knowing Christ. But John 21, the risen Savior, instead of showing wrath and displeasure at Peter for his denial, shows him grace and love. John chapter 21, I want to draw your attention to it. The verse 15, so when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Thinking perhaps of the, uh, the fishing equipment. Uh, Peter was a fisherman. They'd just come in to shore. And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Lovest thou me? He saith unto him the third time, just breaking that passage up, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? It says Peter was grieved because he'd asked the third time, Peter denied Christ three times. Did it bring back that pain? Did it bring back that guilt of sin? And he said, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. Christ showed him love. Peter loved the Lord. And dear child of God, when we consider that great love of Christ toward us, what if our love to him? Do we love the Savior? Do we love the one who died for us? When we consider verse 7, casting all our care upon him, for he careth for you, is this casting something that you do daily because daily you're in sweet fellowship and communion with the Savior in prayer? Over the years, I've heard of couples. Thankfully, the relationships ended before marriage. And certainly, it wasn't myself included in this. But I've heard of couples who for one or two weeks at a time, maybe even longer, had no contact one with another. Maybe 40 years ago, for those who remember, that may have been common. Nowadays, because everyone is so close and you can send a text message instantly and we're used to constant contact. Uh, but yet, I've heard of many who even today there can be little contact between them for weeks at a time. It's hard to believe nowadays that individuals who claim to love each other have made commitments to pursue marriage can spend so much time without, uh, without contact. Circumstances can maybe dictate that, but if you have your phone in your hand, you can send text messages, you can call, the other person can. What's the excuse to ignore them for two or three weeks? It baffles my mind. Maybe it's a normal thing, but it baffles my mind. I couldn't do that. But yet, dear believer, that should never be the case with us and the Lord Jesus Christ. We always have, as it were, the phone in the hand so we can, as it were, make that call. We can pray. 
doesn't matter where we are. It doesn't matter what we're doing. We can pray to the Lord. It should never be the case with us that he is neglected day after day, week after week. And when we think of verse 7, he is the one who loved us. We can cast our care upon him for he loves us. Then this casting our care upon him is a daily thing because we're in daily contact with him because we love our Savior. We love our Savior. Oh, he loves us. Do we love others as well? That's another thought that comes out of this. Christ's love for us, our love for Christ, our Christ-like love for others. Something we've mentioned before. We won't uh, go over it much again, but uh, McShane said, Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. Through our love for others, showing forth the love of Christ to us. John said, 1 John 4, verse 11, we read the preceding verses. He said, Beloved, if God loved us, we ought also to love one another. And so the love that Christ shows toward us is the foundation and is the love that should stir us and move us to love others whom Christ also has loved. Let us cast our care upon him, for he has redeemed us. He's died for us because he loves us. But secondly here, we are to cast our curse upon the Lord because he cares for us. Because he cares for us. The curse of Christ that we see in verse 7 is one of the outward manifestations of his love toward us. Often if we say to someone, we love you, well, we have to show it. It's so easy to say, I love you, but if you don't show it, your words mean nothing, or they mean very little. And of, Christ, of course, Christ shows his great love to us and that he died for us, but he also shows his great love to us in that he cares for us. And therefore, we are to cast our cares upon him because he cares, because he cares. And the care of Christ is necessary for us in life. Despite what some may teach, we are not living our best life now. Our lives are filled with trials and hardships, but praise God, there is a Savior who cares for us. Consider the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he showed care and love and compassion. Matthew 9, he had compassion upon the multitude. He cared for them. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, the verse... 18, <clears throat> and speaking of the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted. Christ suffered being tempted by Satan. He is able to succor them. He is able to help them that are tempted. And this verse teaches us that our Savior is not an inexperienced Savior. He is not a Savior who knows nothing about what we face. He's a Savior who knows all things, but above and beyond that, He is also a Savior who Himself was tempted. And therefore, He is able to help them that are tempted. If you had a problem with your car, let's, well, let's take something simple. You have to fill your car up with a little oil, you have no idea how to do that. Something very simple. 
What do you do? Well, someone can show you. And how can they show you? How can they help you? Well, they know how to do it themselves. They've been there. They know how to do it. We can apply that across the board with help we get from any situation. We don't know how to do something. Someone else does. They help us. And when we think of this verse, Christ himself suffered being tempted. He is able to succor them that are tempted. Yes, because he is God. But also, the reason is given here, he is able to help them that are tempted because he suffered being tempted. Oh, the Savior knew what it was like to be tempted, yet he was tempted without sin. He has an understanding of our frailties. He has an understanding of our temptations. If we move to Hebrews chapter 4, uh, the verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Here, uh, the writer uses uh, this phrase, have not an high priest who cannot be touched. In the English, it's a double negative. It's used for emphasis. What is being said here is we have an high priest who is touched. The negatives cancel each other out. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched. For we have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And here we have Christ being set forth here, and this is something for us to note, that Christ, who was fully man and fully God, but fully man, is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows our sufferings. Even in life, Christ suffered. Not only did he have those physical sufferings upon the cross, but he thirsted. He thirsted. I thirst was that cry. But he knows our infirmities. He knows our weakness. He's one who cares for us as one who knows. One who knows. And what is the purpose of what is being said here in Hebrews verse 16? Let us therefore come boldly with confidence. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Let us pray with confidence, that's what it's saying, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Therefore, dear believer, what we have here is a need. We have need. We have trials. We have infirmities. And therefore, let us come to Christ and let us pray at the throne of grace regarding those infirmities and be encouraged. Why? Because our great high priest knows our infirmities. He knows our trials. He knows our burdens. We can come with a confidence that He will hear. We can come with a confidence that we can cast all our care upon Him. Matthew Henry said, He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities in such a manner as none else can be. Even those who love us the most often may not be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. They may say, oh, you're not really sick. Oh, it's just man flu or whatever it is. But Christ knows. Christ knows. He knows the trials. He knows the burdens. 
He knows the little things. He knows those great things that press down upon us deeply. He knows. Matthew Henry said, He knows these things in a manner none else can be, not only that He might be able to satisfy for us, but to sympathize with us. Oh, dear believer, be encouraged. Christ knows. Christ knows. He is the unchanging Savior. He is the loving Savior. He is the current Savior. Do these truths about the current Christ encourage us to lay our cares at His feet? Not just some of them, but all of them. He is able to, he is able to help us in all our cares. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and here we find the Apostle Paul. Paul said, lest he should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan believed to be as something physical, some sort of a physical disability or something that greatly hindered him. He prayed the Lord that it would depart, but the answer was no. And the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul said, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is Paul saying here? That in all the trials of life, he takes pleasure in them. How can that be? The pain, the anguish, the hardship that we suffer. How can we take pleasure in those things? Paul says he can because he knows the power of Christ. He's weak, but when he suffers these things, he knows Christ is with him. He knows his grace is sufficient for him. He knows the strength of Christ in a great way. Many will say, well, Paul should not have had to have suffered this way in the service of Christ. He was hindered serving Christ. But that was in God's will. <coughs> it was not removed. He knew his strength made perfect in weakness through the power of Christ. He knew that all-sufficient grace. He knew what it was to cast all his care upon Christ. And dear believers, sometimes when we have trials and burdens... The Lord may not remove them. Paul's a great example here. But what did the Lord do? He gave that sufficient grace. Grace that was enough. Grace that was adequate and abundant to deal with Paul's trial, to help him through that. And often the Lord will bring us to the point of trial. We will face that trial. That trial will not be removed from us, but he will give that abundant grace. But continue to cast all your cares upon him, knowing he careth for you. We're to cast our cares. Because Christ cares, we're to cast our cares, not our wants and desires. Spurgeon said, you know, beloved, that there are some selfish carnal cares which we must not cast upon the Lord. He says, it would be an insult to him. He said, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. He said, that cuts off the head at once of many of those anxieties that 
we can sometimes fall into covetous curves. Covetous curves. Or may we cast our curves, not our desires, not our wants, not what we desire greatly in life. Let us, let us cast our curves, knowing Christ curves for us. How wonderful that truth is. How wonderful that truth is. Dear believer, take that away this morning. Our comfort in life is that we can cast all our care upon the Savior. Be in prayer daily, casting that care upon Him. Hymn writer said, Though Satan rage and flesh rebel, and unbelief arise, we'll wait around His footstool still, for Jesus hears our cries. And then thirdly and finally, I want you to see that we are to cast our curse upon the Lord without forsaking our own duties. We're to cast our curse upon the Lord without forsaking our own duties. Notice uh, verse 8 and uh, verse uh, number 9. Be sober, be vigilant. And then it speaks about the devil. And then verse 9, whom resist in whom resist steadfast in the faith. Dear believer, we're not merely to cast all our care upon Christ and not do anything. With our cares, there's nothing we can do. We must cast our care upon Christ, but there are certain things we must continue to do. We're to be sober. We're to be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. And we do not set these duties aside when our care is placed upon the Savior. We do not turn to him and say, here is all our care. Now we can stand to the side. Now Christ can care for us, working out this situation to our benefit, whatever that may be, and we don't need to worry about anything. We are still to be sober, be vigilant. We're not to set aside that basic Christian duty that we have. We have vital duties that we must continue to perform as the people of God. The pastor, for example, is not to uh, come into the church and to think of the great burden of preaching and the great curl of preaching and preaching the gospel to maybe hundreds of people, and many of them are unsaved and against Christ. And this great burden, he brings it to the Lord, and he leaves it there and walks away from it and goes home. God will take care of it. There's still a duty to be performed. Still a duty to be performed. Yes, we rest upon the Lord fully, but there's still a duty to be performed. And Peter sets out these duties in the context of the working of Satan. He's the great adversary of God's people. He's the great adversary of Christ. But praise God, he is a defeated foe. Christ is the victor, but yet, Christ, the, yet the devil is still deceitful. He's still wicked. He's still working in this world and is against Christ. And his desire, as Peter says here, is to devour and to destroy us. He will seek to do all the harm he can to the church of Jesus Christ. He is compared to a lion. And Peter uses this analogy to remind us not to relax our vigilance, not to take a step back from watching. There's encouragement that all our care is cast upon the Lord, 
and that we do not bear our trials alone, but we must watch, we must be vigilant. Would you turn your back upon a lion? Would you invite a lion into your home? Introduce that lion, as it were, to your children, to your family? Turn your back on that lion, go into the other room, close the door? I remember when I lived in Australia, often I would hear uh, of snakes and did see on a few occasions. Uh, we, I mean, churches, we talk in the UK about churches having mice. Uh, the church mouse in Australia wasn't the church mouse, it was the church snake. Uh, because in the car park, uh, in the parking lot, uh, very often on a couple of occasions at least, there, were, there was a brown snake that had wandered in, a poisonous snake. And if there was no medical treatment, uh, that bite would be fatal. And of course, there was young children. And Kerr was taken. Oh, there's a snake outside. Go out and play. Don't worry about it. That was not the reaction. Often, when I was there, that snake lost its life because of the danger that it posed and the danger opposed to, to the young on that church property. We would not turn our backs on such a thing, but yet we do it with Satan, who is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That snake, that lion, as it were, is not as dangerous as the evil one, the one who seeks to destroy the souls of men. And dear believer, as we cast our care upon the Lord, let us continue to be vigilant. Let us continue to seek the Lord. Let us continue to pray to Him. Let us not just cast the care there and move on. Let us continue praying. Let us continue reading His Word. Let us continue coming to the means of grace. Let us continue standing for the Lord. Let us not forsake these duties. Dear believer, let us cast our care upon him, for he careth for you. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, I would have been dead long ago if I depended on men for encouragement. Well, thank God we don't need to depend on people. God has seen fit to encourage us with the text of Scripture. May the Lord encourage us today with this text. May we simply... Cast all our care upon him because he cares for us. And let us not forsake those duties. Let us be sober. Let us be vigilant. Let us continue in our close walk with God as our care is pleased upon him. May the Lord bless his word this morning for his name's sake. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for uh, Thy Word today, and we thank Thee for the blessing that it is. We thank Thee that we can cast our care upon Thee. O Lord, when we think of the evil one, how he seeks to cause havoc, but yet as we cast our care upon Thee, may we always be mindful. Father, may we always be coming to Thee in prayer, coming to Thy Word, being vigilant. 
Father, thou knowest the cares we have. We pray that we would cast them all at thy feet, knowing that thou would be pleased to answer our prayers, to give us grace. Encourage us today, we pray, and though when we think of Peter and this generation living in a sinful, a wicked, an evil time, we too live in such a time. Father, give us grace to stand for thee, to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And though suffering may come, Father, may we go through it, knowing that thou art one who cares for us. We pray, O God, that thou would bless us now. Bring us to thy house again this evening. Bless thy servant as he ministers thy word afresh to our souls. And we pray that the love of God our Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit would rest, remain, and abide with us both now and forevermore. Amen.